A damning new independent investigation into the police murder of Elijah McLean in Aurora, Colorado, has been released this week. But the only people facing charges so far in this case are the activists who led the movement demanding justice for Elijah McLean. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and subscribing. We can do this with you, but not without you. We are joined today by Lillian House. Lillian and other leaders of a mass movement in the Denver, Aurora, Colorado area demanding justice for Elijah McLean, was herself arrested in a coordinated police attack on September 17, 2020. She was charged with multiple felonies and is awaiting trial. If convicted, Lillian House could be imprisoned for the next half century. Lillian House, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Uh, Of course, People in our audience are closely following your trial and the trial of other activists who led the movement demanding justice for Elijah McLean. And we know and want to talk with you today about the next steps for you in the legal process, including what's coming even next week. But let's start first with this report. It's an amazing report. It's called the Investigation Report and Recommendations pursuant to a city council resolution approved July 20th, 2020. I want to talk to you about the timing of when this report was commissioned, July 20th, 2020. I think that's very significant. But first, let's just get your reactions. How important is this report? This is an incredible report, and I highly recommend that people look at it if you haven't seen it yet. Even in the first eight pages, there's a a summary of the investigation's findings. And I mean, it confirms what we've known all along, what anybody who watched the footage of what happened to Elijah McClain knew, that this was wholly unjustified, that it was thoroughly racist and brutal, and that there's no explanation, at least (laughs) legally, for why these cops did what they did to Elijah McClain. But it also goes into details how the paramedics working with the police didn't administer care to Elijah McLean to a horrifying degree. It talks about the investigation that was done into, you know, this police murder internally after the fact and how, you know, this entire investigation was handing these officers the tools that they needed to make sure that they were protected giving them language that would help exonerate them if they had to stand trial, if they were taken to court. It's just full of, you know, rampant corruption and cruelty. And it details the police force that we know the Aurora police to be. And so I think for people here, it is really 
validating. It's so important that people are seeing this and it really just underscores, you know, the justification for the movement that we have been leading that, you know, is now being treated as criminal activity. Lillian, CBS in the Denver Aurora area did a major report about the investigation. I'm going to play a couple short clips. First, they did it on Monday, February 22nd, when the report came out. And then there's another CBS report from yesterday. It seems to me that this must be dominating news in the Denver Aurora area. This is big news. And sadly, there's not that much yet. I hope that will change from the national media, a deafening silence from the national media on something that's such a big story. Let's hear, though, first a CBS News clip from February 22nd. It introduces the importance of the investigation report and also includes a short clip with Shanine McLean, the mother of Elijah McLean. Results from the independent report were released today. The 23-year-old was unarmed and had not committed any crimes when police stopped him back in 2019. The independent report was critical of how police and paramedics handled the situation. It found that McLean should not have been detained in the first place. Andrea Flores spoke to Elijah's mother today. I feel good knowing that my son's name is cleared. I feel good knowing that everybody can see the truth now that Aurora, Colorado, does employ killers, and then they do what they can to cover it up. I want the police officers to be charged. I want the firefighters to be charged. Everybody that stood there and watched and did nothing to de-escalate needs to be charged. I miss his smile. I miss his laugh. I miss him. I just miss him. Lillian, it's so painful to listen to Shanine McLean, and it seems to me anybody listening or watching that news clip from CBS on February 22nd couldn't but be moved into a sort of state of rage about what happened. I completely agree. I mean, anybody who's been paying attention knows how outrageous and wrong what happened to Elijah was. And yet, you know, all the institutional authorities have been saying, no, there's nothing wrong here. There's not even the basis to explore criminal charges. And, you know, that's why this movement has been so strong. It's because what the government's response has been is it doesn't connect with the reality of what we're seeing here. We know that we need a response to the brutality and the racism of the police here. These cops are still employed. They have not even lost their jobs. So these officers who acted so brutally, and now this report is saying it wasn't even legal what they were doing. The Aurora Police Department has continued to hold their ground and say, we don't even have the grounds to fire them. Same with the paramedics. They're still on the job. It's just so outrageous. There seems to be no bar too low for the cops here. I want to read a little bit, Lillian, to you and for our audience from the summary in those first pages of the report. At 10.43 p.m. on August 24, 2019, 23-year-old Elijah McLean was approached by Aurora police officers and told to stop while he was walking home in northwest Aurora. He was wearing a ski mask, a jacket, and long pants. A passerby had called 911 and reported a, quote, suspicious, close quote, person who appeared to be walking and waving his arms but reported seeing no weapons and not being in any fear of harm. Three Aurora police officers responded. 
at 11.01 p.m., 18 minutes after he was first told to stop, McLean was lifted unconscious onto a gurney and then transported to the hospital. He never recovered. Mr. McLean was not armed during the encounter, nor had any suspected crime been reported when Aurora police officers stopped him that evening. After parking across the street from Mr. McLean, who was walking northbound towards his home, Officer Woodyard stepped out of his vehicle, quickly began approaching Mr. McLean, and ordered him to, quote, stop, close quote. Within 10 seconds of exiting his patrol car, Officer Woodyard placed his hands on Mr. McLean. Mr. McLean had no observable weapon and had not displayed violent or threatening behavior. No crime had been reported. The officers later said they stopped Mr. McLean because he was overdressed and wearing a mask in an area one officer referred to as, quote, high crime. And a caller had reported his unusual behavior. The caller said that neither he nor anyone else was in danger. Asked whether any weapons were involved or mentioned, the caller said, no. He's walking home, Lillian. He's waving his arms. The police say he's overdressed. He's in a high crime area. He's wearing a ski mask. And within seconds, they have their hands on him. Just, again, tell people what happens. Walk them through what actually happens once the police encounter him. Right. Well, Elijah was dancing. I mean, I think that that's become clear in the time since Elijah was someone who was always dancing. And he was dancing, listening to music on his headphones, walking just down the street from where he lived to the convenience store that he frequented, and just walking home. And the cops assume the worst, and they feel that they have the right to treat him as a criminal and to put their hands on him within seconds. He's trying to get his headphones out of his ears. That's also detailed, you know, on the body cam footage, but also in this report that he's telling the officers, hold on, I'm trying to get my headphones out. And they take Elijah McLean and put him in a chokehold, drop him to the ground, choke him again while he has officers on top of him, while he is on the ground. And then they torture him for the encounter, like you said, lasted 18 minutes and they're torturing him. This investigative panel is, you know, asks, what was their reason for using these, you know, what they call pain compliance techniques? That's torture. I mean, I don't know what else a pain compliance technique, digging your knees of a full grown man into a 140 pound young person's back into his shoulder blades, his shoulder popped three times. Elijah McLean was vomiting. He was begging for his life. And these officers did not change their approach to him the entire time. And then, you know, these paramedics come in, they stand on the scene for six or seven minutes without checking on Elijah McLean while he is literally dying on the ground with multiple police officers on top of him. They don't check on him. The first thing that they do is move in to administer this massive dose of ketamine in which they completely overestimate his weight and give him just a grossly large dose of ketamine. But Elijah had already been unconscious, unresponsive for a full minute before he was administered the ketamine. 
I think what is so obvious here is that Elijah is just a person living his life in his own neighborhood, which they incorrectly judge to be dangerous. It's a low to medium crime area. It's just a poor working class black populated area. And they come in and they think that that makes it, you know, they feel at danger because Elijah McLean is walking. You know, they use the justification that he had a bag on him. They say that he, they didn't know what was in the bag. He had a plastic grocery bag. I mean, it's just so absurd. But they treat this man as a criminal. They had no right to do so. But what we see is that the institutions, you know, after the fact say, well, in fact, you did have that right. And we're going to protect your right to do that. And there's going to be no consequences. And in fact, what this really does is enshrine their right to treat people of color in our communities in just this way, because no matter how their rules are written, this is, in fact, what they are allowed to do. What is ketamine? Oh, ketamine is a powerful sedative that is often used in these cases where police have interactions, physically encountering people, and then they say that people have this really intense physical response that gives them superhuman strength and that, you know, this justifies the need for this just incredibly powerful sedative. There's a lot of controversy about this. I mean, it's frequently used on people of color who police are saying somehow developed superhuman strength. And, you know, this is this pseudo-medical explanation for this that they can then use as justification to drug them, choke them, those kind of things. That's exactly how the cops who killed Michael Brown in Ferguson described him, that he had superhuman strength, remember? I mean, that was their justification. They shot Michael Brown down, they killed him, and the cop justified it by saying, oh, he was like this superhuman threat. Again, it's all part of racist stereotyping, but the police have all of these so-called magic words, this magic language Whenever the cops are beating the hell out of you, they'll always say, stop resisting, stop resisting. So they have this audio record of as if you are resisting. You see this all around the country, these magic words on the part of the police that are used. You know, first of all, they have qualified immunity, meaning as long as they are police officers and they shoot and kill people, crimes that will be, you know, prosecuted and are prosecutable if anyone is not a police officer With the police, they're given qualified immunity. So it's a shield that gives them the license to be judge, jury, and executioner. But they also have all of this tailored language that, again, is used in court proceedings and normal investigations, all designed to make the victim of police brutality appear to be the aggressor. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, Elijah McLean has been classified as a suspect this entire time, even though the police have never been able to provide to the public what crime he was suspected of committing. And that has been really useful to them as far as their presentation, you know, to the public, as far as why their police officers murdered Elijah McLean. They've been saying, oh, he was a suspect. It allowed them to deny basic remunerations to the McLean family, like funeral costs. And yes, it helps to exonerate their officers, despite the fact that there was no proof for it. And I think that's part of why this report is so significant, because it really looks at every single instance involved in this encounter, and it assesses really what was their justification. They're saying he's a suspect. 
okay, what, what is the grounds for that? Um, are they legally, is there any <laughs> legal justification for that? And it's finding just across the board, absolutely not. Not from the first seconds of their encounter with Elijah McLean was any of this justified. And what it really shows is that this seriousness of you know investigation was not even remotely applied by the initial investigations that were conducted after the murder. I mean, if any one of us kills somebody on the street, we are going to be put through a really grueling process to prove our innocence if, if we're asserting that we're innocent. These cops just went in and were interviewed by other cops who helped hand them language that would be useful for getting them off the hook. It wasn't referred to internal affairs. It was just left there. And, you know, then the Aurora police did another interdepartment review themselves. I mean, the only people who had to look at this were the Aurora police. It's amazing. I think it really just shows how, what it looks like, you know, on paper to have the police operate with total impunity in our country. And it points to the fact that we really need to reduce the power of these cops because whatever their rules are, in reality, they don't actually apply to them. There's, there's nothing holding them to them, not even to the law. I want to talk to you about the timing of the report. I'm looking at the front page of the report. I agree with you. People should actually get a copy. You can find it online in PDF form. Investigation report and recommendation. City of Aurora, Colorado, pursuant to a city council resolution approved July 20th, 2020. The report comes out February 22nd, 2021. Members of the Independent Review Panel, Jonathan Smith, Dr. Melissa Costello, and Roberto Vilsenar. So it's three independent people, legal experts, people who have a lot of experience in the investigations of police abuse, police misconduct. But July 20th, Lillian, you were arrested on September 17th, 2020. You were charged with multiple felonies, I think 12, many misdemeanors. You're facing about 50 years in prison, a half a century in prison. You were a leader of this mass movement in Aurora demanding just what this investigative report, this independent report now suggests must happen, which is that the police who did it be held accountable, suggest that the police training, the police orientation is 100% needs to be revamped. But again, why did the city council approve the resolution on July 20th? I mean, that was when you were in the streets. That's when you were leading this mass movement, which has now turned out to be the predicate for the same district attorneys who did not charge the police who killed Elijah McClain to charge you with all of these felonies. Yeah, I mean, it's a really important question. Why did it take them 11 months to finally commission this report? They did nothing for 11 months. You know, and we've been fighting for justice in Elijah McLean's case since August of 2019. And what we had been hearing was that there's nothing that we can do. We don't have any power. Um, variations of, you know, well, we already have seen an investigation and it proved that there was no wrongdoing. And then you have this massive movement that forces the issue. And that's what happened here. By July 20th of 2020, there had been several very large scale, in fact, historic, unprecedented protests in Aurora, Colorado. There was the first mass protest on June 27th. 
that brought out some 5,000 people. We organized that. And, you know, it brought international media attention to the, the struggle for justice for Elijah McClain, that the city was not accepting, you know, this answer that, that there was no wrongdoing here. Then we had another protest on July 3rd, which, you know, now we have charges for all of these protests. And then on July 12th, another large-scale protest. There were more protests being planned. I mean, the city of Aurora was rising up. And yeah, we were the key organizers of this. And that is what forced the city council to take some sort of action. And yeah, it's, it's stunning. You know, we're hearing so much about this report and how significant it is. And there's not a lot being said about the fact that you know, these corrupt police that you're seeing in this report, you know, you're seeing this rampant corruption, this rampant cruelty. It doesn't end at this report. I mean, that this case is an extension of that corruption. They're trying to take the people who have made this case an international issue, who have prevented it from being buried, and they're trying to punish us and put us away for many decades. So what happens is you are organizing protests demanding that the police be fired, the police who killed Elijah McClain, that they be prosecuted. That's going on for a long time. And then the movement changes after the police, the nonchalant police killing of George Floyd on May 25th in Minneapolis, a whole massive nationwide movement against racism and police murder and police violence erupts. Tens of millions of people are out in the streets. The demonstrations mushroom. And where you are in Denver and Aurora, I take it, they also mushroom. So you're going along demonstrating, but in smaller numbers for Elijah McClain for months and months and months, but after the killing of George Floyd and after the eruption of the nationwide movement against racism, the movement demonstrations everywhere become massive. And that happened where you were. Is that basically the scenario? Yes, exactly. There was in Denver, just like in all around the country, we had many thousands of people coming out into the streets every day. And, you know, those of us who were organizing some of these massive protests, you know, we started to really pushed to have this energy brought to Aurora and brought to this local case of Elijah McLean that still needed justice. And in that context, people were so responsive. And the movement in Aurora was something that that city had never seen. And Aurora, for people who may not know, is a suburb of Denver. It's a large suburb, but it really doesn't have an established movement. And so these authorities were used to not being protested. They don't have to face a lot of challenges. And yeah, like you said, for the first months before there was all of this energy around fighting the racist terror of the police and those initial months following Elijah's death, it was a small core of people. And it was really a struggle to get any kind of response from the city council, from, from any of these authorities. So the movement around the country erupts after May 25th. We had that infamous moment on June 1st here in Washington where Trump walks across Lafayette Square from the White House to take his picture holding a Bible in front of St. John's Episcopal Church. The police, different police agencies, federal and local, 
carry out this violent assault against peaceful protesters in the media to clear the way for Trump to have this photo op. That same day, Trump had that well-recognized, well-known, well-publicized conference call with all the governors of all 50 states demanding that they use violent force to suppress the demonstrations. Mark Esper, then Secretary of Defense, says, we have to dominate the battle space. And the battle space happens to be American cities. And they're prepared to deploy the U.S. military to different cities to stop the protest movement. But instead of that working, the protests get larger. They get stronger by June 2nd, June 3rd, June 4th. They're larger all over the country. And they're larger probably where you are in Denver, Aurora. I'm looking at the report. On June 9th, 2020, this is on page 99 of the report. On June 9th, 2020, the city of Aurora banned the use of chokeholds. Oh, that's interesting. Suddenly, on June 9th, 2020, after massive protests in Aurora and Denver and around the country, suddenly the city of Aurora decides, it's, hey, chokeholds aren't that good. After the world saw George Floyd being nonchalantly choked to death by the cops in Minneapolis. So here you have on June 9th, in response to the protests, the city of Aurora finally does something. They ban the use of chokeholds. Then July 20th, which is you know five or six weeks later, again, when you're organizing massive protests, they say, let's have an independent investigation of what happened to Elijah McClain. Clearly, the city authorities in Aurora and in other cities did nothing until there were massive protests. In the case of Aurora and Denver, you led the massive protests. You were the leaders of the massive protests, and they were peaceful. You know, the Trump administration and some parts of the media take little snippets of some violence that took place in some areas around the country and tried to stereotype, caricature, and demonize the anti-racist protests of that time. But 99% of the protests were completely peaceful. And in the case of Denver, Aurora, they were peaceful. You were leading peaceful protests, and they were starting to impact. On June 9th, the city bans chokeholds. On July 20th, the city finally says, hey, let's have an independent investigation rather than a police-led investigation of themselves. Finally, the city of Aurora says, maybe it's better for the investigation of the hen house not to be conducted by the fox himself, but instead by an independent investigation. All of these changes that we are witnessing in Denver and Aurora are because of what you're doing, because of the protest movement. Yeah, well, and on those officers who killed Elijah McClain weren't even put on desk duty until the day before this massive protest that we held on June 27th. I mean, the connection is just undeniable that these these authorities really intended to do nothing about the death of Elijah McClain to sweep it under the rug, but that it is the movement of the people here that has continued to force the issue and has prevented that from happening. And, you know, that is something that is such a lesson for all people going forward that what we're seeing come out of this movement is a direct response to the pressure of the people that, you know, nothing moves unless we demand it. And, Listen, the case of Elijah McLean is still open. There's a another investigation at the state level, um, which also was commissioned at the height of the protests by the Colorado governor into Elijah McLean's death. And this investigation has the power to file criminal charges against the officers who killed Elijah McLean. 
And so all of this is ongoing. And we, if we know that the people are the motive force, you know, that will really determine what is the outcome in this case, it makes a lot of sense why the authorities would want to stifle the energy of the movement to send this wave of fear through the movement to take out the leaders who have been, you know, the ones organizing these events that continue to keep the momentum up, that continue to direct the energy of the people, you know, towards getting justice. And so if you look at the way that we were arrested, the fact that it was, you know, this sudden out of the blue raid where, you know, for one of the people arrested, Joel Northam, police showed up with a whole SWAT team with a tank. They carted him out in front of all of his neighbors. Then they held us in jail, three of us for eight days. And now we're being forced to go through this grueling trial. We're five months in. We are still months away from actually finishing a trial. Should it go that far? And what is the message to all of these people who came out and challenged the police and the prosecutors here? It is a clear message that even if you are exercising your rights, even if you are peaceful, because that's how people know this movement to be. Anybody who's been acquainted with this movement knows that we and these protests were peaceful. And nonetheless, the police have demonstrated that if you challenge them, if you are exercising your rights and it's making them uncomfortable, it's bringing heat onto them, well, then they're going to use all of their immense power to abduct you, to arrest you, to put you in jail, to make you stand trial. And so it's really important that we don't allow them to succeed. And that's why we're fighting this case so hard because it's been so important to, I mean, it's been decisive in Elijah's case that the people have been expressing their rights and it's still needed. We need to continue doing so. And so we have to protect and fight for our rights to do just that. And you... Lillian and Joel and Eliza, the three of you who are all leaders of this mass protest movement, peaceful protest movement, everybody. This was a peaceful protest movement in Aurora and Denver for all of those months, many, many months before the killing of George Floyd and before the mass uprising, nationwide uprising against racism, and then an even larger movement afterwards again, which forced the ban on chokeholds, that's June 9th, 2020, the commissioning of this damning investigative report on July 20th, 2020. That's during those very weeks and months that you're organizing the mass protest movements that then become the predicate for the same police and the DAs who were shielding the police to put you on trial and They hope to send you to prison for many, many decades so as to send a message to everybody else. Yeah, even if you think you're right, even if you are right, even if you use the banner of justice, are you prepared to go to jail for decades in order to do that? Well, think about it. I mean, that's the message. Their message is, don't you dare rise up against oppression. Don't you dare organize protests, even if they're peaceful. Don't you dare exercise your First Amendment rights, the rights that are considered cherished rights according to American democracy, the rights that America lectures the rest of the world about. Don't you dare exercise these rights because we have power. We have the power to make your life hell. And the tradition that you are in and that all of you are in is the tradition that America validates every year when we celebrate the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King, which we just did last month. But, you know, it's one thing to honor Dr. King now in 2021, 
and say, oh, he's great. He was wonderful. But I'm looking back to April 16th, 1963. Where was Martin Luther King Jr.? He was in a jail in Birmingham. He wrote the letter from a Birmingham jail. Everybody should go look at that letter, April 16th, 1963. He writes, dear fellow clergymen who are criticizing Martin Luther King for having organized demonstrations, peaceful demonstrations, but he again was the one in jail. He says, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your state, recent statement calling my present activities, quote, unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. And then he goes on because then he'd spend all of his time answering his critics. He says in the letter, and this is a letter we now celebrate and we honor every January 15th, you deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham. But your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I am sure that none of you would want to rest content with the superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with the effects and does not grapple with the underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the black community with no alternative. Again, Lillian, what's happening to you in 2020 and 2021 and the effort to jail you, to put you in jail as you have already been in jail for eight days before being able to see a judge? This is this long-standing trajectory of grassroots civil rights movements demanding justice and being met with repression. But ultimately, the repression, I believe, fails. I believe the repression at a certain point fails because instead of intimidating and scaring people, it elicits the opposite response, the response of people who want to fight. And it seems to me that your trial, your case, is eliciting that kind of reaction around the country. I mean, there's the Denver Defense Committee, the committee that has been established of prominent people, civil rights lawyers, civil constitutional rights lawyers, labor leaders, anti-racist activists, people from the peace movement. They have come together to form this committee to support you. There are chapters now, local affiliate chapters, and I think almost 40 cities working to demand that the charges be dropped. Again, the struggle brings repression, but the repression sometimes, instead of intimidating, brings more struggle, more support, and in fact, expands the movement for justice. Right. I mean, I think that they've miscalculated here. They're doing exactly what you're describing. This repression is only exposing the need to continue fighting because in every way, these police are completely lawless. And the only thing that has the power to actually change things as we are seeing to make any kind of steps forward is the movement of the people. And this is something that's not limited to the Denver area. This is something that people are experiencing and learning from this mass movement that shook literally every city and town in the country this summer. And so people relate to this struggle here and they see, you know, as well that a success by the police and the prosecutors to put down the movement here also has bearings on, you know, the what can be done to them in other cities and not just, you know, protesters against police brutality, but anybody who's exercising their right and coming up against someone who holds power. And so we are seeing so much support from people all over the country who are paying attention to this case, 
who won't let the prosecutors do this in the dark if they are going to try to get away with punishing peaceful protesters, then we're going to make sure that they're exposed through the process and we're going to defeat this repressive attempt. The National Committee for Justice in Denver is composed of, you know, these incredible prominent voices from, you know, constitutional rights and civil rights, legal circles, different people who are educators, labor leaders, all of these different voices who are taking a stand and coming out publicly and firmly against this prosecution. And then, like you said, recently there have been the formation of 36 and growing local affiliates around the country. So these are people who are saying, we're going to take this case in Denver and we're going to make it known where we are and we're going to mobilize around it. And it's really a model for how to respond to repression like this, to take it, to expose the system through it, and to show that we also have power and that we will fight to defeat it. Lillian, I want to play real quickly as we start to, you know, close out here. Time is running short. I want to play another short NBC News clip, which also picked up on the fact that there is this national committee in defense of you and Joel and Eliza and the others who have been arrested and facing very heavy, heavy charges in the Denver Aurora area. Let's listen to this news clip and then I want to ask you a follow-up question. Moreover, Hayden Hilliard is a constitutional rights lawyer in D.C. and one of the first to sign her support to a new National Committee for Justice in Denver. There are many reasons that uh, this this is a fundamental threat uh, and a violation of First Amendment rights. That's one of the many reasons Verhaden Hilliard joined the movement to demand the charges against local protesters be dropped. Constitutional rights lawyers, civil rights lawyers, academics, um, you know, educators. In one month, the committee has added dozens of members. In fact, national committees for justice in Denver are popping up all over the country. 36 different cities and uh, localities in the country have decided to form local affiliates of the National Committee for Justice in Denver. Across 22 states so far, a show of support for the protesters here in their own towns. So that's an NBC News clip, Lillian, about the formation of the National Committee for Justice in Denver. Again, before we leave, we'll give people the website so that they can go and sign up, sign the petition, or become activists with the committee. But before we close, What's next for you? When are you in court next? Yeah, so coming up, starting actually next Monday, we have some really significant court dates coming up. We have charges in two counties and we have court appearances for both. On March 1st, we have our arraignment in Arapahoe County, which is where we'll be entering a plea, of course, not guilty on all of the charges. And then on March 9th, we have a preliminary hearing in Adams County, And this preliminary hearing is regarding specifically the attempted kidnapping charge that we have ridiculously received for holding a protest outside of an Aurora police station. So protesting the police outside of a police station is being prosecuted as kidnapping. So we will be heading to preliminary hearing on that charge on the 9th, and then we'll have an arraignment and be looking at going to trial in the coming months. All right, Lillian, let's go finally to denverdefense.org. Denverdefense.org is the website for National Committee for Justice in Denver. I'm on the website right now, and there's a movie, there's a documentary movie about your case. People can show that in their local area, at a school, at a church, at a mosque, at a synagogue, at a 
community hall. People can join the local committees. They can write letters. They can sign petitions. They can also make a donation. I'm a legal defense and public mobilization defense like this, of course, is very costly. Part of what the state wants to do is bankrupt the movement just by putting people on trial. Uh, you have to do an active legal defense and public mobilization defense. Anyway, there's a lot that people can do to help if they want to help. Yeah, please go check out denverdefense.org. It's really an incredible website. You can read a lot more about the case. And I would really encourage people to take an active role in whatever way that you can in helping to push forward the struggle to drop these charges, to end the political prosecution. The National Committee also has social media on Instagram at Justice in Denver and on Facebook by the name of the National Committee for Justice in Denver. And as we you know, fight this case, we are still continuing to fight for justice for Elijah McClain. We want to see criminal charges for those cops who murdered him. We want to see restitution for the family. Today, February 25th, Elijah McClain would have been 25 years old. He should be celebrating his birthday. There was no reason why he had to die. And we need to get justice for this life that was so wrongly taken from our community. Thank you, Lillian House. We'll continue to follow your case and the case of the other defendants who are facing, as I said in the beginning, decades, decades in prison because you were the leaders of a mass movement demanding justice for Elijah McLean. If people go to denverdefense.org to find out more about the Committee for Justice for Denver for the defendants that has been formed by organizations and prominent individuals all around the country. There are local chapters. Join a local chapter. Check out the amazing documentary movie made by Breakthrough News. That's there on the website. You can share it with your friends or you can host a showing of that movie to get a discussion going in your area about this very, very important case. Lillian House was our guest today. She's on trial, facing decades in prison, along with others. We'll continue this struggle for justice in Denver and Aurora. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.